We're putting people into horrible conflict, but what is the conflict? Why haven't we changed the measurement? And then what's the bad assumption? That's level three. And that's when we find those limiting beliefs and assumptions that's really behind all of our bad measurements that we can actually make permanent and sustainable changes in the organization. So, Dr. Bernard, I'm super excited to have you join me for this episode of Coffee with Closers. Um, I saw you at the event at ClickFunnel Conference. I heard that you are the coach for Ben Hardy, and then I was just so happy to meet you there. And I'm like, man, I need to have Dr. Bernard on my show. So appreciate you joining me for this episode. Thank you so much for the invitation. So most certainly, Doctor, you're known for actually, you know, kind of proliferating this concept called theory of constraints. But before anyone can fully understand it, can you? Elaborate on a little bit in terms of what is a core problem, and then how you define the theory of constraints. Can you do that for our audience? Sure. So when we call something a theory in science, right, we can expect two things. So if we talk about theory of relativity, part of the theory has to define very clearly what relativity is, so it removes any confusion. So I'll start mm-hmm. off by defining very clearly what is a constraint and how does it relate to a core problem. And then the second part is a theory also should tell you why knowledge of this thing, in our case, why knowledge of a constraint is so important and useful when you are making decisions like any business owner out there. So let me start with the first part. A constraint is any resource that you don't have enough of to achieve a goal. So if you think about a system in in the simplest possible way, right? A system has got five elements. It has a goal. So if you think about your company or your organization, you might have a very specific goal around income if it's a for-profit business or impact if it's a for-purpose business, right? So you start off with Mm -hmm. the goal. Now, the goal dictates a couple of things. It tells you what work you have to do to achieve that goal, to achieve that income or impact. Do you provide services or products or combination? So that's the second part of a system of the work that you have to do. The third part of the system is what resources do I need to achieve the goal and also how much of each do I need? And there's really just five types of resources for any organization. It starts off with, I need enough demand for my product or service to achieve my impact or income goal. Secondly is I need enough capacity to reliably deliver enough of that work or service, right? To achieve the goal so that's mm-hmm. the second part the third type of constraint resource could be that do i have enough supply so supply would be external all the things that i need to provide the product or the service so that could be raw materials it could be labor it could be machines etc the fourth part is mm-hmm. cash i need enough cash to be able to buy all the inputs the supply and pay for all the operations to be able to meet the demand. And then the last one is management attention. Mm -hmm. Obviously, management is managing the system, and management attention goes into making sure I always have enough. I have enough demand, I have enough capacity, supply, and cash. So any of Mm -hmm. those five resources that I don't have enough of can be a constraint. In the simplest case, you have only one constraint at a time, like one weakest link, right? In the more mm-hmm. complex cases, is you might not have enough of multiple of these resources, and that can be very complex and even chaotic to try and manage that system. So that's the simplest way of thinking about a constraint, is just a resource that I don't have enough of. You can ask, well, how does this relate to a core problem? 
in general terms, if you think about any of the root cause methodologies out there, they would define a core problem as any problem that explains some kind of performance gap, right? So I'm not achieving my profitability target. What's the core problem? A core problem would be something that explains a significant portion of that gap using 80-20, right? 20% of the causes will typically explain 80% of that gap. So anything that fall, falls within that 20% could be considered a core problem. In theory of constraints, we have a very specific definition of a core problem. A core problem is something that is limiting me or blocking me from better exploiting or elevating a constraint. Exploiting simply means not wasting it and elevating means getting more of it. So if I have a constraint with market demand, how am I wasting it? There's customers wanting to buy from me, wanting to use my product or service, and I do something silly that blocks them from utilizing it. That's like I'm wasting the scarce resource. Elevating means something is blocking me from adding more products or going into new markets. So core problem mm -hmm. is anything that can limit or block me from better utilizing the scarce resources that I have or elevating them if I need to. And core problems kind of exist at three levels. There's the problem itself. Often, for example, a core problem in a business could be just that we're using the wrong measurement or the wrong policy. So in the steel industry, it's very common that their primary measurement is tons per hour. Now imagine mm -hmm. a steel company that has a demand constraint, but their primary measurement is tons per hour. So what mm -hmm. will they tend to do to optimize that measurement is they'll produce as much of the products that gives them the highest tons per hour. They won't produce mm -hmm. the products that the customer actually needs or wants. They'll produce the ones that makes them optimize their metric. So that measurement mm -hmm. is the core problem that's limiting them from getting more, more customers, right? But below mm -hmm. the measurement, the second level of a core problem is some conflict that I have that blocks me from resolving that core problem. So keep on using tons per hour versus stop using tons per hour would be an example of that. And then the mm -hmm. third level is some assumption that's blocking me from resolving that conflict. So just in summary, a constraint is any resource that I don't have enough of to achieve the goal that I've committed to. And a core mm -hmm. problem is anything that blocks me from not wasting that scarce resource or from not elevating it, from not getting more. So there's a lot of nuggets that you shared. I certainly want to expand on some of those things. But obviously one common question people might have when you're trying to find the root cause of an issue is probably confusing the theory of constraints with the five whys that's been taught by Toyota and probably a lot of people in the manufacturing space may have heard of yes. as well, right? So can you explain and the difference between the five whys versus the theory of constraints? Sure. So for those listeners or viewers that are not aware of, 5Y just says if you identify some kind of performance gap and you ask yourself why is that gap there, right? So if you think about, say, mm -hmm. we're not achieving our profitability and you ask why, well, there's a couple mm -hmm. of options, right? We are not mm -hmm. selling as much as we thought or our cost is higher. So mm -hmm. let's just say we say it's sales, right? We're not selling as much as we... Then the next question should be, well, why is that? It could be because we are selling less or we are selling at a lower price. And then I can ask why again. So why am I selling less? Well, we had a problem in the factory. We couldn't supply. And then you say, well, why is that? 
And we say, well, we had a breakdown of one of our constrained resources. And why is that? We didn't invest in preventative maintenance. So the, the idea is very simple, but quite mm -hmm. profound in that you should keep on asking why until you get to the final root cause that can explain that. But mm -hmm. like any of the root cause methodologies, the five whys suffer from something called confirmation bias. So every time I answer the question why, I'm in fact picking from many options and I'm giving you an answer for the option that I think it is. But how do I know really it's that, mm -hmm. right? How do I know it's really the volume and not the average selling price? So mm -hmm. you could sit here and just keep on asking five whys and you could come up with a completely wrong analysis of what the root causes. So as with all of these methodologies, every time you ask why, you have to find some way of, of checking, is this really true? So we use a similar concept to the five whys in theory of constraints. It's called a current reality tree, where you start off with the expectation or performance gap at the top, and you keep on asking why, but every time you come up with a reason, you have to check, is this really true? Is this mm -hmm. actually causing the effect that I'm trying to explain? And if so, is it the major cause of that effect? So it takes a lot of discipline to get value from a technique like the five whys. So basically what you have created is some sort of a check and balance that at each of those scenarios to verify there's no confirmation bias that you're not just assuming something just because you feel like that is the root cause. When you brought up the idea of we're not hitting our profitability, being the sales guy, the immediate thought I have is, well, we just need to increase our prices. If we increase right. our prices, we can address the profitability problem, right? Because right. I'm, I have that sales hat and I'm always going to be somewhat biased towards selling more or, you know, increasing our price. Right. And we do this even in our day-to-day -day life, right? So you could be speaking to a friend of yours that recently got divorced, right? And say, okay, mm -hmm. so the effect that you're trying to understand is that there was this breakdown in the marriage, that there was a divorce. And then you, you ask why, why, why? And they could come up with a conclusion, you know, we just got married too young. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense to us. So we say, oh, yeah, that makes sense. But how do we know that that's the problem? That's the root cause of mm -hmm. it, right? It's a very hard thing to check because we have to check at every level. Is that really true? All the way down to the mm -hmm. root cause. So you obviously used an analogy, an example earlier about a company that's manufacturing iron or metal and that their yes. concept of measurement is the number of tons per hour. So can you give us another example of where the theory of constraints was used to find out the root cause and then how they were able to kind of overcome that obstacle or the constraints? Sure. So one of the earliest and probably the, one of the most profound insights that Dr. Goldratt, who created theory of constraints, he was my mentor, Dr. Eddie Goldratt, he discovered this mm -hmm. quite early on. We were trying to identify why projects are often late and over budget right? The majority of the projects, like you know, are, are late and over budget. And why is that? When you get somebody to use the five whys, they keep on asking why. Normally, the conclusion that they come up with is that we underestimated the level of complexity and uncertainty and interdependencies. And as a result of that, because of the complexity and uncertainty, what can we do? We were just late. Now, if that was their conclusion, what would they do the next time they do that type of project is they will build in more buffer, right? On both time and cost to be able to deal with the level of unknowns. 
So you can imagine that the first project might be late and over budget, but why would the second and the third and the fourth be? So what Dr. Goldert realized, it might be something else. It could be that it's not that we don't have enough safety, is that we waste the safety that we had. And he had identified a number of areas where that happens. Mm -hmm. One of them is imagine you do two tasks and these tasks are dependent. You have to complete task A before you have to do task B. And you use a computer program to schedule the start and end date of task A and the start and end date of task B. Now you've estimated that each of these tasks could take 10 days, but in reality, maybe you're lucky and it only takes five days or you're unlucky and it takes 15 days. So there's always variability. What will happen if task A finishes on day five? If task B were told that they will only start on day 10, it means that they will only be ready on day 10. So essentially all the early finishes will be lost, but any delays will be added on. Can you see how in that yeah. environment, because we can't capitalize on early finishes, projects will mm. at best be on time if everything worked perfectly and we finished every task ahead of time, it could potentially be on time. But even just one task that late will cause the whole project mm. to be late. So from that conclusion, mm. you realize that when we are planning and executing a project, we have to do it in a way that we can capitalize on early finishes and not just be hurt by delays. So that was one major cause. The other major cause is today it's, you know, kind of common sense and we all know about it and agree with it. But in the 1990s, it wasn't so obvious at all is that we multitask, right? We have these two tasks, A and B, and nobody's telling us which is highest priority. So we keep on switching between them. And every time we switch, there's a switching cost. We have to figure out where we were and we have to report on progress. And as a result, both A and B takes much, much longer than what it should have if we didn't do multitasking. So you also mm -hmm. using this methodology yeah, they, they call to the, check what is the root cause, identified multitasking as one of the second big culprits to explain why projects are over time and budget. Yeah, and I think like you said, and today most people understand the context switching is very costly, trying to go from one thing to the next. And they talk about batch producing content or you know organizing the tasks of same type and then doing them all at the same time just to avoid having to switch between tasks. I know it's a total misconception that we can listen to a podcast and still do something. Sometimes even just listening to a podcast makes you less productive yeah. when you're trying to reply to an email and when you have to actually think. Um, and what's so, very useful is when you, when you identify a reason like that, what you should do is mm -hmm. also check where else can it happen. So if you think about the manufacturing environment, right, there's a software called an MRP system, material requirements planning system, that essentially does mm -hmm. the same thing as a project management system. It says you receive an order, it will break down that order into jobs and schedule job cards to do mm -hmm. job A, then job B, then job C. But it does it in mm -hmm. the same way. It creates a plan start and end for every job. If job mm -hmm. A is finished early, it gets booked into work and process. Mm -hmm. And on day 10, job B can start. It will go and draw the stuff out of work and process. So again, the same problem. You can't benefit from early finishes. You get only harmed mm -hmm. by co late completions. And as a result, you can never be on time. You'll always be late. The, another example of this is budgeting, right? spend it or lose it, which is very prevalent in the government agencies, right? 
same conceptual problem. You spend less than you expected, which is good, but unless you use it, you lose it. So you never benefit from under expenditure, but you always get harmed by over expenditure. And as a result, you'll always be over budget. Yeah, and also you're incentivizing bad behavior as well, right? By saying like, exactly. hey, yeah, we hear it all the time. I think our defense budget, they say, well, we need more money. But no one ever asks like, well, what can we do to optimize? And this is especially true for sure in the government sector and not not, not even, I mean, I don't think private se sector is any immune to this problem either. I think they're also incentivized to do the wrong thing sometimes for sure. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I once spoke to an Air Force pilot test pilot and i asked him are mm -hmm. you ever impacted by the spend it or lose it and he said yes the worst day of his year is when they fly missions just to mm -hmm. dump fuel wow because if they don't use the fuel they'll lose it next, not just this year but next year can you imagine that taking off That's getting in the air bad, dumping all yeah. the fuel so we're that putting people into horrible conflicts and, and that's this idea that I want to keep with your viewers and listeners, right? Is to think about a core problem always at three levels. Don't stop mm -hmm. at the level that says we've identified that this measurement is driving the wrong behavior, but what is the conflict? Why haven't we changed the measurement? And then what's mm -hmm. the bad assumption? That's level three. And that's when we find those limiting beliefs and assumptions that's really behind all of our bad measurements that we can actually make permanent and sustainable changes in the organization. Mm. Yeah, I mean, this is definitely a, a great concept and only if more people actually uh, try to understand this concept and actually put it to practice. So are there some misconceptions about the theory of constraints that people might have you may want to overcome or address? Yeah, I think that there are two major misconceptions. The one is that we tend to call anything that's problematic a constraint. And that we pick up from English is we can call anything a constraint. Oh, what's your constraint? Well, you know, the government policies is my constraint, right? Or the, my people behaving badly is my constraint or not being productive, etc. In theory of constraints, like I mentioned, it's very, very important that we use the word constraint only for resource constraint something that I don't have enough of, because then we can also do an experiment to say, how do I know that you've correctly identified the constraint? It's, it should be very simple. If you find a way of getting more of it by preventing it from doing stuff it shouldn't be doing, right? Or you can actually get more of it, then the amount of gold units that you're generating should go up. Does it make sense? So if you have, yeah, a, say you have a capacity constraint with your salespeople, right? If you say, well, sales capacity is our constraint. Well, how could we test it? Well, two ways. We can ask the salespeople to list all the things that's currently demanding their time and attention. And we work with them to let them know what they can stop doing, either because it's not needed, or we can automate it, or we can delegate it to someone, right? Now, if our conclusion was correct, that they are in fact the constraint of the system of the organization, then releasing that capacity means that sales will go up and profitability should go up even more, right? Mm -hmm. But if we give mm -hmm. them back time and they're using the time to try and sell more, but sales doesn't go up, then our conclusion that that was the constraint was wrong. So it's really mm -hmm. important that we use the word constraint only to refer to a resource that I don't have enough of. 
because then we can test. Well, if you had enough of it, will the system perform better? Will the chain become mm-hmm. stronger? So that's mm-hmm. misconception number one. The mm-hmm. other misconception that I think might be even more important is often theory of constraints is confused with de-bottlenecking. So if you imagine a little factory that have five machines, right? And you mm-hmm. find that one machine is the slowest and now you de-bottleneck it, right? You find a way of getting more. Oh, customers want 10 per hour. This machine can only produce five per hour. We found a way of getting it to produce 10. And then I go to the next machine and I get that one to produce 10 and then the next one. And now I have the system that's perfectly balanced. Every machine can do 10 per hour. How much Mm -hmm. will the system deliver? This is something that's used in just in time, often the tech time which is that time that all the machines need to work at to meet the demand, right? Mm-hmm. They end up with a balanced system. They've completely de-bottlenecked the system. The problem is, when you think about it, how much will that system produce? Mm-hmm. Each one has the capability of doing 10 per hour. How mm-hmm. much will it produce? Our intuition says, oh, now it should be able to, on average, produce 10 per hour, right? But what happens is that machine A, there's variability. Yes, on average, it can produce 10 per hour, but it could also produce zero if it had a breakdown. (laughs) And maybe Mm -hmm. if it's working on something simple, it can do 15. If it had a Mm -hmm. breakdown, it will immediately starve the next resources. So what Mm -hmm. ends up happening is the 10 per hour is the theoretical maximum that that system can produce, but it will all Mm -hmm. often produce much, much less. What you actually need is not a balanced system, but a system whose capacities look more like a V, mm-hmm. right? So the bottleneck is at the bottom of the V. That what should be capable of doing 10 per hour, mm-hmm. considering it also has its own you know, planned and unplanned maintenance. After deducting the mm-hmm. time that it loses, it should be capable of doing 10 per hour. But to get 10 mm-hmm. per hour out at the end, you have to make sure that this resource is never starved or blocked. Mm-hmm. To make sure it's never starved, all the resources in front of it should have additional capacity to keep a buffer in front of my bottleneck so it's never mm-hmm. starved. And all the resources behind it need enough protective capacity to clear away any product in the storage, right, to make sure it's mm-hmm. never blocked. So that's the other one is theory of constraints is not about de-bottlenecking. It's not about balancing capacities. It's about balancing flow by unbalancing capacities. I hope that makes sense. It's very counterintuitive, but the most efficient way of running any system is not to have balanced capacities because you'll end up getting much, much less and the cost per part will be huge. It's actually unbalancing capacity. So you have a single bottleneck that's never starved or blocked. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. So I was hoping for the remaining time that we have, we can probably do like an actual practical assignment, right? So you talked about sure. kind of the three different levels of identifying the root cause or the constraints, right? And then obviously just trying to figure out, was it a wrong assumption or do we have the wrong metric, whatever the, the cause might be. So imagine I'm pretty sure most people listening to our business leaders, my audience typically fall into either like a SaaS or software industry or manufacturing sector. That's where they mostly fall. You talked about in the systems, right? Like you talked about the demand problem, the supply problem, having the the right materials and different things that actually makes a system function. And most companies are always talking about growing sales and improving their top line revenue, right? Not every company is raising money and borrowing funds to grow. And oftentimes they're growing with customer funded growth, right? Where they're selling services or product, make money and then invest that back into the company to grow. So knowing that constraint being growth as a constraint, how do you use 
the theory of constraints to kind of really find out the root cause and then try to solve for how to best invest the resources or how you call it, you know, basically maximizing the resources. We'll take a SaaS mm -hmm. company, we'll say the goal of the SaaS company is profitable growth, right? Mm -hmm. That's my goal. Now that goal mm -hmm. will dictate how much demand do I need and also how much capacity mm -hmm. do I need? Typically with SaaS companies, they don't mm -hmm. really have supply of raw materials or anything, right? It's just internal development capacity that they need. So you can work backwards mm -hmm. to say, if I want profitable growth, I'm currently at $1 million by the, I want to double my revenues every year, right? So next year I want to be mm -hmm. at 2 million. I can work backwards to tell me how much demand do I need? How many software licenses do I need to sell to achieve that goal? Mm -hmm. Then the mm -hmm. question is, well, do you have enough demand for that amount mm -hmm. of licenses? If you say mm -hmm. no, then demand is your constraint, right? Mm -hmm. If you say, yes, there's enough demand out there, but I don't have enough capacity to meet that demand, then internal capacity mm -hmm. will be the constraint. Mm -hmm. Let's take, first of all, the, the simpler case where internal capacity is the constraint. They say, okay, my developers, these top people that have to both fix the bugs and develop new functionality, they've become the constraint. What do I do now? Mm -hmm. So with theory of constraints, we essentially say we've identified the constraint. It's our development capacity, DevOps, mm -hmm. right? We want to understand how to better exploit and not waste that scarce resource. So I will sit mm -hmm. down with the developers and say, okay, you're on site for eight or nine hours a day. Please mm -hmm. make a list of all the things that is currently demanding your time. And what I almost can guarantee you is a significant portion of those things that demand their time are not helping, mm -hmm. helpful. Mm -hmm. It's wasting their time. So I can address that and say, okay, what can we stop doing? What can we delegate? What can we automate with something like ChatGPT, for example? And that will release mm -hmm. capacity. And maybe it's enough capacity to now be able to meet the demand that's placed on them. That, mm -hmm. Does that make sense? So in that case, the constraint is development capacity. The core problem mm -hmm is that they are doing things that they shouldn't be doing. The mm -hmm. conflict, which is the second level of a core problem, is should I actually stop doing these things or should I continue doing these things so I look busy, right? And the limiting mm -hmm. belief is that by doing these things, it's in some way helpful that I wasn't able to just stop them without any consequences or delegate them or automate them. So that's kind of mm -hmm. what I do if, if I have a capacity constraint. If it's a market mm -hmm. constraint, it's a little bit more difficult because if the market is the constraint, deciding how to exploit and not waste the market means that I need to make an assessment that says, okay, how much of the market for my SaaS software do I actually have? Maybe I have only 5%. So that gap is how much I'm wasting of that scarce mm -hmm. resource, right? And essentially, I want to identify what are the conditions that if I could satisfy those conditions, would get more customers to willingly pay more, buy more, mm -hmm. or buy more frequently. So that's essentially trying to put yourself in the shoes of the customer and asking why are they not buying my amazing SaaS product? And mm -hmm. your core problem will be the reason why they're not buying. The conflict will be why haven't you changed that? And the limiting assumption is why fundamentally I haven't been able to resolve the conflict. So I hope that's mm -hmm. kind of useful in two cases. Of course, you could have a SaaS company that don't have enough cash. They have enough demand, they have enough capacity, but they just don't have enough cash to give them enough runway, right? 
And again, the same thing. How much cash do you need? How much is available from your shareholders? What are the conditions that if you could satisfy them would get your customers to willingly give you more or your either your customers or your investors to willingly give you more cash? Understood. So when you talk about the level three, right, and you're talking about the assumptions aspect of it, you know, depending on the size of the market and depending on the number of players in the market, you could, in theory, make some wrong assumptions, right? Like you said, hey, I have 5% of the market. I'm not fully utilizing the available market to my advantage and charging them more, selling them more or making them buy more frequent, right? Like you talked about yeah. those concepts. And how do you know that you're not making a wrong assumptions about your market share or this? how big is that addressable market? How do you ensure you're not making some wrong assumptions? There? Sure, so for the listeners and viewers out there, if, if I wanna give them one takeaway of what is fear of constraints, I think it can be summarized with just four words. The first mm -hmm. one is focus, right? Focus mm -hmm. means, first of all, identifying what are all the things that I can stop doing that's consuming mm -hmm. and wasting my scarcest resources, my limited attention, my time, my budget, etc. And then decide what are the few things I should do and should do really well that will allow me to achieve my goal but then to do them in a way where I'm not multitasking. So the first two mm -hmm. words is focus and finish. Focus, mm -hmm. decide what to stop doing, what to start doing, but then do them one by one. That's the finishing part before I switch. The last two words is about fast feedback. Mm -hmm. Is I should view every decision I'm making as an experiment. Mm -hmm. We don't learn from experience. We learn from experiments, right? If you think about touching a hot stove plate, why do we learn instantly? Because the feedback mm -hmm. is fast and immediate, right? Mm -hmm. But imagine that stove plate burnt you a day later or a week later. Yeah. Will you and ever learn the right lessons? No, you wouldn't. So what I mm -hmm. encourage people to do is, you know, there's this concept in lean startups called minimally viable product. There's a step before that. I call it a minimally viable experiment. Every time you make an assumption, think about an experiment I can do that will help me to validate or invalidate this assumption. So if I have an assumption that if I add these additional features to my software, that customers would be willing to pay more or buy more, how can I test it mm -hmm. before I even build the product? Mm -hmm. Right. Could I do a survey? Could I do some interviews, phone people on board? Could I check if there's any other ways of, of validating that assumption? So that's where the fast feedback come in is to think about every decision that you make as an experiment mm -hmm. that I want to learn from. So I have to be very clear. What is the assumption I want to test? And the last comment that yeah. I think is useful to make there is, you know, there are many fears that block us as entrepreneurs from taking actions, right? There's the fear of failure. There's even fear of success. But one of the fears that are not commonly spoken about is the fear of feedback. What if I developed this amazing product and customers hate it. So what I do mm -hmm. unconsciously, I avoid like the plague, any feedback from coming back. And yet mm -hmm. that is exactly what I should do. You know, as founders, we often tell people about our amazing product and they go, oh, wow, Samuel, that's amazing. People are going to love it, right? What I should be doing is to actually select people that will give me criticism will tell me mm -hmm. why somebody wouldn't buy this and use that feedback mm -hmm. 
to improve my software or my product or whatever it is I'm providing. Yeah, that's uh, that. We just had that experience the other day. We have a software that we're subscribing to. We were actually in the process of canceling, uh, and it's an early startup that is doing the product. And the CEO actually wanted to have a call with us and asked for our feedback on why we didn't think the product was the right fit. He said, "I just need to know why you couldn't adapt the the tool set." I think right. he's doing the very same thing that you're describing, which is super critical. Oftentimes, we can get kind of resentment toward the customer when they're canceling. You have no interest in wanting to invest any more energy you just want to move on like i'll oh, forget about it you exactly know, cancel. who cares yeah. we'll get another client but it's actually an opportunity to really learn uh, get that feedback and like you said the feedback is not always the the best thing right like you don't you don't necessarily no. want to receive it it does you, you know when somebody it. criticizes our beautiful baby you know but that's exactly what we need <laughs> to know so that we can we can know how to improve it most certainly. Well, Dr. Bernard, I certainly sure with uh, the, your theory of constraints and your expertise, you never make a bad decision, right? Is that true? <laughs> do, do you think I would be interested in decision making if I haven't made a ton of bad decisions? Of course not, you know. So yes, but the only thing we can do is to learn from every one of them, right? And that's what uh, what wow. attracted me to decision science, right? Is, is that curiosity mm -hmm. about why good people make and often repeat mm -hmm. bad decisions. You know, what is it? Why do we make bad decisions? Mm -hmm. It turns out it's really easy to make a bad decision, right? If you think about mm -hmm. anything that you do, there's so many options. It's really mm -hmm. easy to select the wrong option. And the second mm -hmm. thing is when you do make a bad decision, it's actually quite hard to learn from that experience unless you've made it very clear what is the assumption that you want to test when you made that decision. So that's kind of, for mm -hmm. me, I use that as just, you know, don't be so hard on yourself. It's easy to make bad decisions. It's actually pretty hard to learn from them when you do. But the fact that it's difficult doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. It's yeah. to always think about, okay, what are my options? What's the best possible option? And a good option is one that has a big upside if it works and a small downside if it doesn't, right? That's mm -hmm. always a good option for a decision. I want to stay the hell away from options that has only a small upside if it works and a big downside if it doesn't. So that's mm -hmm. the first one is finding some way of simplifying of all the options I have, which one should I go after? And to have very mm -hmm. high expectations, to have that 10x mindset, right? I want an option that can give me potentially not just 1x or 2x or 5x, but 10x, because I have a much better chance of selecting an option that has a big upside and a small downside. But then once I do it, I need to pay attention to have that fast feedback, to check, is it working? Is it not working? Why is it not working? What can I do to modify it? Mm -hmm. One thing I think you should do a little bit of research about is the decision by committee that sometimes frustrates the heck out of me where you know for sure what that company need to do, especially when you're in a sales conversation, you presented yeah. them the solution, you have all the right options presented to them, then you have a committee that just completely never makes a decision because there's yeah, they can I, never come I mean, to it's any a, terms. It's an area that we've really researched and what I can tell the viewers and listeners is there's generally two types of causes to that. The one is that the mm -hmm. committee is not being measured on the right thing, right? So that's normally, it's not that the committee members are bad, it's that they mm -hmm. have a bad measurement. And that when you give them the right measurement to adjudicate, typically their behavior will change. Like, mm -hmm. you know, if their primary measurement is on the cost of doing something to minimize that, mm -hmm. and they're mm -hmm. completely ignoring the cost of not doing something, you can mm -hmm. guess that they will be biased, right? So one of the things that yeah. I do when I'm engaging with a customer is my first thing is, what 
will be the cost of doing nothing. Okay, it's costing us $100,000 a day for every day that we're delaying this decision. And I make mm-hmm. sure that they're aware of it and that yeah. it dwarfs the little bit of money maybe that they'll have to invest. Maybe it's a half a million dollar investment. And they say, if we can just save five days, it'll be paid, right? So that's mm-hmm. one thing. The second one is people will procrastinate when they are scared. So you have to find out what are they scared about mm-hmm. and give them some way of mitigating or reversing the risk. Yeah. Right. So if, if somebody is scared that they'll make the wrong decision, you know, you say, listen, go with ours after a month. If it didn't solve your problem, full money back guarantee. People, Those are the two things is, is try to think about. Could there be a measurement that's causing them to make a bad decision or delay the decision? Or could it be some fear? And as the seller, we have to help them with both of us, with both of those. Yeah. Yeah. The cost of inaction. Sometimes I think we spend very little time talking about the cost of inaction. And oftentimes we're talking about ROI and the benefit of the decision. And oftentimes, like you said, they're weighing their option. They're like, oh, if we don't spend any money, we're actually saving money. Let's not spend the money. Right. And they're hold off decisions. And, and yeah, a, a good example is, you know, let, let's Let's just say I'm trying to convince you to buy my product. And I say, Samuel, here's the benefit. The benefit is going to be 20. The cost is going to be 10. I'm creating 10 value for you, right? Now, you as the buyer will look at that same assessment from very different perspectives. So you will look mm-hmm. at that 20 and say, based on your past experience, salespeople tend to exaggerate the benefit. So most probably you'll mm-hmm. only get half of what they claim. So that 20 becomes mm-hmm. a 10. And then when you look at the cost it's side of 10, you'll say they probably underestimate what the true cost is. So rather than 10, mm-hmm. it will probably be 20. So you walk away with a perception of value of minus 10 as the buyer and me as the seller think it's plus 10. And I I can't understand why didn't you make the decision to do it? Mm -hmm. So one Mm -hmm. way of overcoming that is to be fully transparent right from the moment to say, I don't want to use the likely or best case. I want to work with you to identify what is the worst case benefit that you will get. And Mm -hmm. I want to compare that to the worst case cost. And if the worst case benefit still exceeds the worst case cost, it will be a very easy decision for you. If it doesn't, Mm -hmm. it's on me. I can't expect you Mm -hmm. to make a decision where the worst case benefit could be significantly less than the worst case cost. That's not an easy decision. I'm going to work with you to either increase the worst case benefit or to dramatically reduce the worst case cost. So that's to me like a practical way of resolving that conflict between the seller and the buyer. Yeah, we need a separate episode altogether talking about how this theory of constraints could be leveraged even in a sales and a marketing scenario. A great concept, Dr. Bernard. I certainly enjoyed this conversation. Appreciate you sharing your wisdom and knowledge with our audience. How can people find out more about your body of work and, and also about you more? Sure. On um, all the social media, you know, Dr. Alan Barnard, A-L-A-N-B-A-R-N-A-R-D, You'll find me, I've got a YouTube channel, I've got uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram. We try to do as many posts, so there's a lot of resources out there for free that that hopefully could benefit your viewers and listeners. For those that are interested in how we've used the research that we've gained to develop decision support apps, they can go to Harmony apps. There's three types of apps that we've developed, they're all award-winning apps. Each of them deals with a different type of decision mistake that we make. We've developed these apps because technology are often really a great tool to either reduce or even avoid the most common decision mistakes that we make. 
Awesome. We'll certainly include all those links in the, the description as well. But Dr. Bernard, I certainly enjoyed our conversation. Thank you again for sparing your time with me. You're very welcome. Thank you. This episode of Coffee with Closers is brought to you by One IMS, a leading digital marketing agency helping businesses win new customers. To request a free marketing ROI audit, please visit oneims.com. If you enjoyed this video, please share it. To make sure you never miss an episode, please subscribe.